Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Today's guest is a returning guest, Elisha Christopher, to continue our conversation about how we reconstruct our world in light of the pandemic. Elisha, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. It's great to be back. Yeah. You listened to my last podcast on tipping points, and it sparked some ideas in you. Maybe we could start with that. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I think a great place to begin is just this idea of looking at this moment that we are all collectively experiencing, this moment in history, this moment for humanity, this moment for life on earth, really. And that, you know, you talked in your podcast last week about recognizing that there's, there's this energy of tipping point where lots of little movement has been made over a long period of time in a particular direction. And then at some point, enough people or enough participation or enough energy has moved towards something that suddenly it's like it has a life of its own and things begin to just cascade in that new direction. And I think in your podcast, you referenced something where, you know, we need about 10% of a population to grab a hold of an idea for then it sort of just to take, to have a life of its own and just to begin to spread within a group or a collective. And as we look at what's happening in our world right now, we are at a, in a sense, a crisis of tipping points or a clashing of tipping points. You know, I I was thinking, you know, as we've watched the nation respond to the George Floyd's murder, that this has been an event that has been, we've basically witnessed this same thing happen. And we have a long list of names that we can refer to, you know, Eric Gardner and Trayvon Martin and so many more that all have been victim of this same cycle it finally took one more, one more time, one more moment. This thing had to happen once more for the nation to rise up and say this must stop. That in a sense, George Floyd's death was a remarkable tipping point for the voice of the Black Lives Matter movement and conversations about systemic racism to actually begin to be part of our collective homework as a nation, especially for the privileged and for white America to really see the issue at hand and recognize that there's something about that we have to participate in in order to make a difference. And, you know, we look at the environment right now and and we are at a moment of, of really who knows what with the future of the planet, but that when we look at global warming, when we look at at you know the idea that was spread a number of years ago of the idea that we need to keep our global temperature rise be below three degrees centigrade and that there's almost no way we're going to meet those goals and when we recognize that the idea that if the te- if the global temperature rise goes above a certain average that there's a tipping point that happens you know where the ice caps the melt starts to speed up, the salination in the ocean starts to change, the weather patterns in the, around the earth could be radically altered by this sort of tipping point moment where we've just gone beyond what is working. Things are going to start to crumble. 
So we have the tipping point of the, the healing that we need in this nation around race. We have the tipping point of, of the environment in front of us. You know, we're looking at whole systems of government and economies around the planet that are, you know, things are starting to wobble. There's a great sense of unrest uh, happening. And I think that what we're experiencing is, in a sense, a clash of tipping points or a whole series of things that have not been working and ways of doing and being that humanity has been engaging in that have really been leading us towards the road of destruction or towards the road of annihilation. In little bits and little increments, no one really was paying attention. But now that all of these different lines of our world, all these different issues are rising up that are really demanding our attention, we're recognizing that there's a tipping point here, there's a tipping point there. And and what do we do in a moment like this where it's not just one thing that's reaching a tipping point, but it's almost all of the structures around us are reaching this point of collapse in a sense, that there's this great tidal wave of change. And we either have to harness this energy and figure out how to how to redirect this great this great collective unraveling or this great tipping point and not let it be for our destruction but let it be for the creation of something new and for a new and more sustainable world yep well i think how we got to this point before the pandemic was a, a great inertia the train's going down the track and you can't stop it So all of the stuff about race and the Me Too movement and the the pipelines and stuff like that, it was just stuff that we couldn't make a difference about. We couldn't stop climate change. We were caught in a web of the trains going down the track and we're on the train. Yeah, you know, we've been living in a world that's been in such perpetual motion for so long. Most of us have been pushed in some unconscious, subconscious, meta-conscious way. You know, in some way, the society or the world around us has told us we just need to keep the engine running. We just need to keep the machine moving. And we've had this sort of mechanical view of the universe, frankly, and also of people in corporations. And the way that we need to engage and everything has just been very much about, you know, the rat race, keeping the wheel rolling, keeping society moving. There's been a number of major, major issues that have really hit tipping points leading up to this. You know, Jane, you mentioned a lot of these would all just uh, kind of to sum up uh, what we'll call hashtag movements for a a moment that are these major issues that have come up about major violations in human activity of how we treat the earth, how we treat each other or some body of our society. And that we've been calling out these major violations, these major sort of tipping points of events that have just been going on and on and on, that people are beginning to rise up and say, this cannot happen anymore. The water is life, hashtag water is life, which was about the Dakota Access Pipeline and, you know, government and corporations just having their way and doing whatever the hell they want on native land, regardless of the will of the people whose land it is. And sending, you know, sending the military in to take out the protesters who are trying to help protect people's private land, indigenous people's private land. You know, Me Too has been a movement that has come up, has been about the violation of women's bodies and the non-consensual use of people's bodies, of people's lands. You know, these are sort of between these two movements already. There's sort of a correlation here that the Extinction Rebellion movement is about recognizing that if we don't do something, 
that the Earth life is is potentially uh, at risk, and that it's because of all of our dangerous and, and frankly quite harmful human behavior that most of us engage in every day that is causing harm to the planet, that is causing harm to other people. You know, this whole conversation that I myself am trying to educate myself about right now, this whole conversation that we're having about race and, and systemic uh, oppression and racism in this country is again about how many of us, myself as a white person, have been engaging in unconsciously participating and engaging in society in a way that has actually been harmful, that has actually been helping keep other people oppressed, that has actually been causing harm around the planet. Last time you and I talked or in one of our previous uh, conversations, you know, we talked about the oil spills in Ecuador that are directly related to our purchases here on the west coast of the United States. Because the tankers that give us blueberries and, and tomatoes and stuff from Chile are fueled by the oil from Ecuador. And say more about the, the spills and the toxicity. And We talked about previous, but there, you know, there's areas of Ecuador that are just completely destroyed, hectares of rainforest where the the solution of you know when the oil spills happened the chevron or whoever the shell or whoever the company is that was down there at the time you know rather than clean it up they just dumped it into big open pits in the ground and there's hundreds of hectares of rainforest that are just completely stocked with oil and people around those communities have high 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 rates of cancer and all kinds of other illnesses yeah one in four people have cancer and yeah you know and and they can, and unfortunately that is a direct result of my actions because i have because you know because you and i have lived in a world that has told us that we can have blueberries any time of the year we can have bananas any time of the year and they're being shipped all around the planet well there's a great impact for our convenience and many of us are blind to the impact many of us are, are incredibly blind to our privilege and the impact of our choices on so many different levels i believe that that is also something that is very methodical we live in a very interesting time of what I guess I'll have to say is a time of, of really manipulated truth and manipulated information. Most of the way that the world functions really does so out of a method of keeping most of us in ignorance to what we're actually saying yes to and what we're supporting. Our example of you know the oil spills in Ecuador being directly related to the shipping up and down the West Coast, which is directly related to mine and your purchases has to make us think is the health of the rainforest more important to me or is having a banana any day of the week more important to me this is an important question that we need to start to ask ourselves and and it's about recognizing that everything that we do has deep impact and perhaps it's somewhere else that we can't see we consent to things every single day that we are unaware of that are potentially dangerous, that are potentially causing harm, and that oftentimes things that we just wouldn't say yes to if we knew what we were saying yes to. 
Alexa. I mean, Amazon's Alexa. I, that- yeah. So, you know, if you, for example, have an Alexa or one of these Google devices in your home, Amazon's Alexa is listening 24-7. And it is recording every single thing that's being said in your house. Every conversation, say if you say, for example, Jane, if you have one in your house, every conversation you have with your husband, every intimate thing that happens in your house, there's a microphone that's listening. And every word that is being spoken is being transcribed somewhere and held on a computer that is, and all of that information is now owned by or accessed by Amazon. And they do not necessarily, they do not disclose what they do with that information. They just say it's for marketing research. Does my computer have to be turned on for that to record? No, if, if, if the Alexa is plugged in, it's listening. Oh. Amazon is listening. There's a transcription of what's happening in your home. If most people want the convenience of not having to get up to push a button to listen to music or to get a recipe or to say, hey, Alexa, blah, 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 blah. It's fun. It's exciting. People want to engage in this. But what they don't realize is that by engaging in this convenience, you're consenting to being listened to by strangers. And most of us wouldn't invite a stranger, wouldn't just leave our door open and say any random stranger can just sit in here and listen to what's happening in my house. And yet millions of people around the United States are beginning to do that regularly. Many apps on your phone, uh, by clicking the I agree on the, on the terms of service, you've just agreed to let that company see all the pictures in your phone. You've agreed to let them access your microphone at any time. You've agreed to let them access your camera. Some of them are even at, you're giving them access to listen or use your camera at any point in time, whether you're using the app or not. These ones are specifically about you know surveillance being listened to, but these are very real things that are happening. And the point of all this is that it's all kind of being done in a way where it's, you know, our terms of service are all done in legalese and they're pages and pages and pages long. No one reads them. And so people can give their consent to something without knowing what it is. Much of our world is being run that way right now. Many of our senators and Congress people are writing bills that are pages and pages, hundreds of pages long. And there might be a title where this bill says it's for one thing, but down in all of that pages and pages and pages of legal writing, there's some law in there that I guarantee you most people wouldn't vote for. And this thing happens all the time. We live in a world where there's so much information coming at us that in a sense, the barrage of information makes it really easy to just hide all sorts of, well, kind of mischievous things in the world that we then then say yes to that perpetuate things that we really probably don't want to see. So talk about colliding tipping points here. We're talking about the problems and the issues and different tipping points where people, one group's going in this direction and another group is going in another direction. And the pieces of the puzzle that we're trying to put together in some concerted form, coherent form. Yeah. You know, and and I would say this, it's, you know, you know that I'm always looking about, I'm, I'm, my word is is synthesis. You know, we've talked about this before, that I'm always looking for how do seemingly different things overlap? How do, what do seemingly different ideas have in common? 
as I look around the world right now, and we used a lot of these sort of hashtag movements as part of this example, I don't want to say hashtag movements to downplay. These are very major issues, but each one of them can sort of be kind of summed up into hashtag such and such. And then we have this whole thing about the sort of mischievousness of terms of agreements and all that. What I'm saying is that there's all of these different elements of our world that seem not to be working. There's all these different, you know, we look at our environment. We look at the ways that our corporations and our governments interact with us. We look at the ways that the, the race relations and the oppression that's going on in the world. And we look at the different things. And the thing that I see is in common between all of them is that the sort of tidal wave, the big tipping point that includes all of these little streams is that there are so many different elements of our world that are all starting to crash into each other. The environment is collapsing around us. And that's going to lead to a whole lot more disparity between classes. It's going to cause a lot more people to start moving around the planet. It's going to cause a lot of people to start rubbing up and bumping up against each other. A lot of things are going to start changing. And, and, a, and all of these issues, any one of them people could, could deal with but they're all interconnected. So they are. Climate relates to mass migration, relates to economy. With them linking together, it results in a compounding effect. Yeah, and that we have to begin to look towards solutions. You know, we, we often say, you know, it's like we have to rise above the level of the problem. We can't solve the problem with the same level of thinking that created it. We first have to look at, we have to name what's not working. We have to name the hash, we need to name Me Too. You know, we have to name that there's something wrong here. We have to name Black Lives Matter. We have to recognize that there's something that we haven't been doing. We have to claim the, the rights of indigenous people. We have to acknowledge the environment. There, you know, we, we can go down the line. There's these major, major, major issues that all need to be addressed. One of the things that I see that, if we look at them all as different separate issues, first we have to do that. We have to sort of unravel each of them in order to see what's here. Because we have to do the healing work. We have to look at the ugly stuff. We have to look at what's broken in order to see what we need to do, how we need to address moving forward. But the other thing that we can see when we start to look at each thing individually is we start to look at the parts. We start to look at the the sort of collective, the, and for me, the overlaps and the things that connect them all. And what I see in all of this is an arrow pointing us to perhaps a major cultural shift that is necessary to address all of these things. In my own life, I always look to what's not working as an arrow to point me as a target to direct me towards what would work. It's like if I can really see what's not working, then find its opposite or name the base root problem and then begin to work on that. And what I see here is that all of these different issues that we've kind of talked about and scattered little bits throughout this conversation is that they all point me towards a future where 
we must live in a world where people are informed and given the opportunity to truly consent and understand the choices, the effects of their choices and the sort of cause and effect relationship of the world that we're building. Because every one of us are so interconnected at this point that every choice that any one of us makes actually affects many, many, many other people. And so we need to move towards a world of sort of creating a societal culture of what I'm going to call informed consent, where relationships between corporations and their customers or governments and their people or men and women or, or governments and indigenous people or the systems that keep races and classes either oppressed or uplifted. You know, but we have to recognize that if we lived in a world where informed consent was the base culture, that when you went to go to buy, when we went to buy something from the store, that we were truly informed of the global impact of what it is that we're purchasing. Or if when bills are written or terms of service are written and we vote for those things or say yes or purchase those things, that we are clearly being told what it is that we're consenting to and what it is we're saying yes to so that we can truly participate at a level of choice. And that's going to be a process of, of really almost a, a mass re-education and really a whole new way of thinking that's going to need to emerge for us as an emergent society and a new culture emerging on the planet is that we need to start having impact thinking. So you hear you've got a president and he tells everybody, and then you've got a corporation and they determine the rules. So you've got top-down management and you've got where the worker bees don't get to vote, or maybe we get to vote, but our, the electoral college overrides the popular voters. I mean, you know, I'm looking at top-down versus consensual you know, and this is in a huge way, I mean, what we're talking about, I think, is also, you know, what Frederick Laulo really talks about in Reinventing Organizations and his exploration of the sort of evolution of, of organizations of the spiral of spiral dynamics and what he would call second tier or teal or turquoise leadership or management is really about beginning to look at organizations, countries, companies, governments, beginning to start to think of these things as organisms and not machines starting to recognize that we at the level of complexity that's emerging around us we need to move into a way that really empowers individuals to make informed and educated choices that benefit themselves as well as the collective i think that on some level it has to just begin in small circles, in conversations, in individual businesses, in individual relationships, in creating small circles where people start working together and coming up with new ways of doing things. Frederick Laulo and Reinventing Organizations talks about like 12 or 20 different companies that are creating whole new ways of doing things that are really about trust, that are about transparency. In one of the examples in, in the book, Reinventing Organizations, Lalo talks about a company where every single person sets their own salary. And every single person's salary is public to everyone else in the company. And everyone every year writes a letter about why they are paying themselves the amount that they are. It's public and it's account because 
if you pay yourself some absorbent amount and then you don't do the same amount of work as everyone else, everyone that you work with is going to see what you're paying yourself and everyone that you work with is going to see what you're doing. And it's going to create this energy where people are going to want to be honest, right? Be because if everything is public, everyone is accountable in this certain way. And so the corporation runs in this way where everything is completely transparent. And then also people are given the power to make financial decisions about the company and use company money. And there's whole processes about how to engage in that. And it comes from this level of everyone is given the, the information that's needed to make informed choices. And then that benefits the business as a whole. I'm working on building small circles where people are, are just being able to study and come up with new ideas and begin to work together in new ways. This is something that I think is starting to happen a lot is people coming together in small groups and starting to build new systems, new ways of doing things in small groups that then we can share to larger groups or bring into other organizations. I think that this is going to be something that happens in little pockets here and in little pockets there. And this company is going to start doing something and this person's going to create a, a business and operate in some new technologies, new ideas or ways of doing things are going to come forward. And I think it has to be a organic process of tending to emergent ideas and beginning to, in a sense, kind of learn how to go with the flow and begin to create in a new way. But so, it, we have to begin by giving people real information and stop playing in this field of distorted truth that we seem to be surrounded by right now. It's about informing people. It's about informing people of the impact of their choices and really looking to the value of individuals, the value of life, the value of the planet. We're in this very interesting time where we need, in a sense, some sort of mass, I want to say a mass education on impact and on cause and effect. Because as a society, many of us are so far removed from the impact of our choices. It's all the muddled information around us that makes us either so overwhelmed that we don't look or the convenience and the comfort just makes it that we don't care. We need to be more concerned about the health of the rainforest to kind of start cycle back around than, you know, can I have, you know, a banana every day of the week? Well, maybe I can only have bananas at certain times of the year. Maybe I can only have blueberries at certain times of the year. And instead of being so comforted by the convenience that I don't think about the impact that I become so uncomfortable with the impact that I'm not comfortable with the convenience. If I have one dream that comes out of this moment of COVID, it's that we are able to return to a simpler, more connected with deeper relationships with a few people in your immediate vicinity as opposed to the multitude of non-connected interactions that we have with millions of people every day. You could gather around with a few people who you know are in your particular area and we start feeding each other, we start taking care of each other, we start supporting each other in households, in neighborhoods, in small zones. It's much of this world where we're 
zipping around the planet and shipping goods and services around the planet and making everything available to everyone all the time that unleashed COVID, that supports the systems of oppression, that has made it so that corporations and governments and sort of male-bodied people have risen to sort of become power hungry. You know, this whole cycle is feeding itself. Hmm. Okay, so what about jobs? Will more jobs spring up like little seedlings? Will this create new jobs as we start to put our lives back together locally? An interesting thought is, is that perhaps the more locally we focus our lives, the less jobs are needed because people just spend their life doing what's needed to be done. If you're growing your own food and that's what you spend your time, you know, it's like you can go to a job to make money to buy food or you can spend your time growing food. And there's actually a closer relationship when you spend your time growing the food yourself. You know, it's like, what if we can go, what if we begin to find a way? And this it may take some major restructuring of how we house people and how we exchange money. And there may need to be whole new systems that emerge for us in an emergent future. But if we could allow ourselves to, to move to a somewhat more simple version of life that is maybe a little bit less comfortable, but a lot more supportive of the environment and of human life and of the quality of life and happiness of people in general. A somewhat simpler, slower life produces much more measurable happiness in humans. So I can see bartering, oh, I can do massage or I can do healing work and you can do dental work and, you know, we exchange chickens for <laughs> and eggs or a medical appointment or something. Mm-hmm. But I think that the thing that we need to return to and that many of these tipping points we've been discussing all point to as well to me is that we live in a world that we have not been supporting a world that has been about connection. Mm. And this lack of connection to the other, to the planet, to the self, to true health, to true worth and value, everything is commoditized and monetized and scheduled and labeled. That there's, that there's a deep desire for connection that I think is calling us forward. And yet we're prohibited from connecting with each other. We can't hug our, our grandkids and our, we're being forced to stay apart from each other, to socially distance. I think that's causing psychological issues. And when we eventually come back together, we've got to rethink that too. Mm-hmm. You know, and all this social distance is to me this awkward reminder of how absolutely connected we really are that we're so connected that everyone around the planet is now having to stay a certain number of feet apart from each other because something that started in a market in China or an airport in Seattle or a this or a that or an outbreak in New York that affects everyone and that they're, we're so connected that there's this major event happening and no matter where you are, it might be near you. I mean, that's how connected we are. And it's kind of this weird juxtaposition that we're so connected that we now must remain apart. 
<laughs> so it's kind of like, uh, you know, the Indra's net, everything's connected, all the threads of all the interconnections. And that's really what we need to start looking to, looking for the interconnections, looking for the impact, looking at the cause and effect. And in order to truly do that, we need to fully be able to give informed consent to our choices. We need to know what we're saying yes to. We need to know what our values are, and we need to really begin to look from and with our values at just about everything that we do. I, I try to live a very low-impact life, and I still know that much of what I do from the time I wake up until the time I go to bed is harming someone or something or the earth or the future. And I am continuously striving to lessen my impact. But it takes a great deal of work to become truly informed about the impact of our choices. And once we do, there's a whole great deal to be done once we realize what it is that we are causing. The first thing is we just have to be get, begin to become informed and have the conversations, spread the right information, begin to really look at the things that we see that aren't working, unfold them, dissect them, name them, and then begin to look at what we need to do to create a new world where we can look to what's possible and use what's not working to guide us towards a world that works. So you talked about these things coming together like Aikido, that you look for where the energy is coming from. And Aikido is a martial art that, you know, it's, it's about net, you never make an attack. It's always about seeing energy coming at you and assessing how, what you can do to deflect and move that energy in a different way. Oftentimes, the defensive person will move very little. Perhaps it's just about moving out of the way and letting that person that's running at you run into the wall behind you. Or you can just take the momentum of what's coming and move them in a different direction. And I think that that's what we need to be preparing ourselves for, is as these sort of tipping points are rising, as the sort of tide of change is moving towards us, that we need to be able to see it coming and either learn how to ride the wave or learn how to move and divert the energy into a possible future that works. If not, we're all going to get whacked by this wave and it's going to take us all down. I want to be someone who participates in the potential creation of a new world. And I think that right now is that's the task at hand. And we're either going to build it as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had said, we're going to join together as brothers or we're going to die together as fools. Oh dear. It's either we, we either join hands, we rise together as a collective who's willing to accept the change and move into a new future, or we're all going to perish in our sort of muddled confusion together. So it's kind of like a puzzle that you dump all the pieces out and then you start connecting small pieces and finding the edges first that outlines the puzzle, the whole thing. And mm -hmm. then you begin to put the pieces together. So it's not like you've, you, it's not like you know where you're going with it until you get into it. Yep. And, you know, in Frederick Lalo's work, I seem to be referring to him a lot today. He says that in the second tier paradigm, we need to move from this idea of predict and control situations to sense and respond. 
that we need to sense what is and respond from there. Because, you know, th there it is an unseen future in front of us. What you're saying is that we can either go into a great unraveling or create a new normal, and it's kind of up to us. Yeah, and I think that only time will tell. Well, thank you very much for this very thought-provoking conversation, Elisha. Of course, Jane. This has been fun. Thanks. So you don't miss any of our shows, make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.